to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Welcome to another one of our programs on legal professionals and purpose-driven organizations dedicated to making a positive economic, social, and environmental impact on our world. We're having a series of conversations with people who are committed to making a difference by contributing their time, expertise, and experience to supporting these organizations and participating in the development of new solutions for achieving sustainability. The series which we are calling Corporate Lawyers Changing the World, an insider's look at corporate social responsibility, is sponsored and supported by the business law section of the American Bar Association, which has over 50,000 members and has just published the Corporate Social Responsibility Deskbook. Sales of the Deskbook have been gratifying, and these podcasts provide a great opportunity to provide more information within the legal community and to entrepreneurs, directors, executives, managers, investors, and others who are interested in one of the most important global topics of our time. I'm Alan Gutterman of Gutterman Law, working here in the San Francisco, Oakland Bay Area, and I'm your host for the series and one of the co-editors and authors of the desk book. Today, I'm delighted to have us here from Margaret Cassidy, also one of the co-editors and authors of the desk book. Margaret is the founder and principal of Cassidy Law and is currently chair of the ABA Business Law Corporate Compliance Committee. Margaret counsels businesses on implementing and improving ethics, compliance, and socially responsible programs with a focus on government contractors both in the U.S. and abroad. Margaret prospectively counsels businesses and their leaders on procurement laws, conflict of interest, and ethics laws, as well as anti-corruption and trade laws. Margaret defends businesses and their leaders accused of committing business crimes, whether in a criminal or civil investigation, and also defends businesses subject to a government audit. And before we get any much further into the, into the, the questions and, and conversation today, I, I, I just want to say, Margaret, uh, uh, I want to thank you so much for all the help that you provided uh, along the many months that we worked together to put the, uh, the project together, you know, working with the outside authors and contributors. Um, we couldn't have done it without you, uh, it, you know, the, the editing part of it. And, and, and I know that all the contributors and the ABA are, are very grateful for all your time and investment of effort. And uh, uh, I, I look forward to continue to do it, um, you know, moving forward. So well, Alan, for today's purposes, though. Thank sure, you for that, Alan. Sure. And, of course, the, 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 I felt the same pleasure in working for you, with you, and for you on this project, and, and I'm really pleased for how it turned out, and um, learned learned a lot from you. So, and thanks for having me on today. Good, thank you. Well, you know, let's 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 dive right in then. And and uh, you know, the title for the book includes corporate social responsibility or CSR, but there are a lot of different ideas about what's going on in this area. Um, what's your understanding of CSR, ESG, sustainability, purpose, and all the other terms that are used? And, and how do you explain it all to your clients, your colleagues, your friends, and, and family members who ask you, uh, what are you doing every day? Um, 
So, Alan, first off, I love I love your reference to the to the purpose driven organization, and 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 I like you and passionate about organizations being socially responsibility, socially responsible, and having a purpose in what they do. Um, I think that they've always sort of had a purpose, and I talk with people about that when they ask me. I'm going to focus on corporate social responsibility um, more than any of the other terms you used. I think that corporations kind of have always had somewhat of a corporate social responsibility aspect to their existence. They have to provide something to us um, or we're not going to buy their products and they're not going to survive. And arguably for most corporate corporations, that's something constructive and useful that we all need. But for a more concrete or more legal definition, one of the things that I like to think about is way back in 2006, the Harvard Business Review uh, ran a great article by two of their professors, Michael Porter and Mark Kramer, titled Strategy and Society, the Link Between Competitive Advantage and Corporate Social Responsibility. And in this you know, earlier definition of corporate social responsibility, they talked about how a business to be socially responsible needs to think about its moral and ethical imperatives um, as a citizen, that it needs to provide for, for a sustainability of our environment primarily, that society has given them a license to operate as, as, an, as a business entity and, and in exchange for that they owe something back to society. And then they, they finally point out that social responsibility also entails the, the idea of what is that corporation's reputation. It's a reputation enhance, enhancer. Since the, since the decade that this was written, I think their points are even more valid. They stand today and are even more true, and I think as corporations look out at shareholder activism, um, social media, and that type of action that sometimes can really whip up a frenzy against a company, I think that social responsibility means for a company that they um, consider and study what it means um, for for them as an organization to essentially just be a good citizen in the societies in which they operate. That's how I like to view it and think about it. I, I think you know, that that certainly makes sense, and uh, you know Porter and Kramer were you know at the forefront of what has become this this very popular concept of of shared value, um, you know, in terms of of uh, what what the purpose of business organizations ought to be going forward. You know, as you know, there's there's debate. Not everybody is bought into this. Um, uh, you know, for as many, it, it, even in the past few months since since the book has been released, uh, you know, on the one side there's been um, additional books uh, written on the purpose of business, and then, but still on the other side, you have you have well-known investors like uh, Warren Buffett or whatever coming out and and reinforcing the traditional view that the you know the business of business is is shareholder value and uh, not necessarily stakeholder value. So uh, uh, the debate continues, but uh, it seems clear that it's no longer something that uh, lawyers like you and me and our clients can can ignore. Um, let me, uh, you know, I, I, I gave the folks a, a little uh, update on your on your current practice and everything, mm-hmm. but. Uh, I'd be interested in knowing a bit more about, you know, what your past has been like and, mm-hmm. and, and, and where did it, how did you land where you are today? 
So I think my path, my path has been winding, but, but reflecting back all the way to my youth, I recall growing up in Ohio, just pouring over the criminal activity in the newspaper. I mean, even when I was a little girl, 10 or 11 years old, I, I was fascinated with crime. And every night I would ask my dad to do a bedtime story around cops and robbers. And so I've always sort of had this um, um, interest in criminal activity, why people do it, how do they stop doing it. And my my interest in that drove me to go to law school. And I started as an appellate law clerk, state of Ohio appellate law clerk, then a prosecutor in Allegheny County. I did street crimes. And eventually I did business crimes at the state level in Pennsylvania, um, crimes of cor- corruption, securities fraud, and that type of thing. I then left there and was the Global Compliance Counsel for GE Transportation, which was a division of GE that sold locomotives around the globe. So we had a lot of challenges in doing that going into emerging markets. Then I moved from GE Transportation to PricewaterhouseCoopers and was eventually their government ethics and compliance officer. Now I have my own firm, which I started about five years ago, and I and I do what I did for GE and PwC, but on a smaller scale for small and middle market companies, I do internal investigations. I counsel them on working um, the legal requirements for when they work with governments around corruption and, and procurement fraud and following the procurement process. But I also prospectively counsel them on building ethics and compliance programs and socially responsible um, corporate programs. And CSR for me came about because uh, both of my corporate employers recognized that they had such value in their reputation as long-standing, respected organizations, and they knew that that was no, in no small part built on how they engaged with all their stakeholders, and, and I think that probably goes back for each of them, even before CSR became the, a buzzword. They, they knew to have a good business and to be a respected business, they had to engage not only with their clients or customers, but with respected business partners, that they had to pr- perform well and contribute to their communities and then also respect their employees to get the most talented and then to get those investors, especially for GE, the the publicly traded company. And they knew that uh, making sure they followed the law and doing that in an ethical way and then a socially conscious way in one way or another ultimately hit their balance sheets. And so I think through those conversations about reputation and both of those organizations that I had is how I came about, um, you know, having to be writing and thinking and working in the area of CSR. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's a fantastic background. And, and one thing you mentioned that, uh, you know, is going to be an ongoing theme and something that I'm, I'm very interested in is, um, you know, many of, many of the contributors that to the book, um, uh, you know, they come from larger law firms, uh, you know, and they work with larger clients and everything. But, um, you know, the principles and issues apply to all businesses, regardless of size. Uh, you know, I, since, since the book has come out, for example, I've gotten more interested in business and human rights and, and, you know, the guiding principles for business and human rights from the United Nations are quite clear that they apply to all businesses of all sizes. So, uh, you know, a, a key question is how do you, how do you make this fit for, for small and middle market companies? So I, I think you're in a very exciting area that, that, uh, you know, is, is quite useful. Um, building on all of that, Margaret, mm-hmm. um, could perhaps tell us a little more about your days and like and what projects are occupying most of your time and, and, 
also feel free to comment on on uh, you know uh, in, in any of the things that I've mentioned as well. Well, Alan, I think first off, speaking to small and, and, and middle market companies, um, I think to the extent I had a business model, Alan, when I wanted to start my own business, I noticed in both of those large organizations that I worked in, when we would look to team up with a smaller or middle market company for whatever reason, a sub- subcontractor to have them be a prime contractor, a joint venture, any purchasing through merger and acquisition, um, we would have a lot of due diligence, as most large companies do, around their legal compliance, their ethical choices, and, and how they interacted with their community. <clears throat> so one of my thoughts was, to your point, a lot of the expertise that both you and I have sit in very, very, very large law firms, and sometimes is unaffordable for the smaller businesses, but they do, in fact, have to um, think about how they interact in, in you know, from a socially conscious perspective. So that was one of my thoughts when I started my business, and and so I do think it's important for them to think about it as well, and I think they're uniquely situated to be a very good corporate social, uh, corporate citizen um, around their social responsibilities. That is the small business. But from what I what do I what what I do now from a client perspective, if I'm if I'm I, I could be managing a crisis for a client. They've either gotten some sort of government investigation via subpoena, search warrant, or something like that, or they have an internal investigation that's fast moving. So that's one aspect of my business. Business, but the other part that I do is more prospective. Um, I work with my business clients to help them devi- develop compliance, ethics, and socially responsible programs to mitigate the risks of um, a legal problem or also reputational damage. One one matter that I'm working on right now is with actually a larger global publicly traded company, and they're having a challenge around how they work with their clients and, and third-party sales agents, suppliers, etc. And they um, they want to create a uh, organization that adheres to the laws and is socially responsible, and they're really focused right now on how they select their business partners. And they want to, they they know from a business driven perspective that they want to avoid issues, as you said, of human rights problems. They want to avoid corruption issues. And they also understand the the perception of who they're doing business, who they're selling to, really is not only a legal imperative so that they are not selling to somebody who is sanctioned or who is engaged in rank corruption, but they appreciate they don't want to be bitten by having an association, whether that be a customer or a business partner, with another organization that may abuse its relationship with the government through through corruption or some other sort of misdeed. So I'm working with them on developing policies, but there's a lot of meetings, quite frankly, a lot of arguments around the value and the legal mandates around them and their industry from a social responsibility perspective. And they, the, the business itself already includes kind of in their pitch why they're socially responsible and why they kind of help and benefit their ultimate customers and the communities where their customers are. But what I'm working with their lawyers to do is to try to get the business team to actually operationalize that a little bit more so that it is captured in, in their communications more concretely, captured in their policies, and it's more of an expectation rather than something that they try to do to market themselves as a differentiator in their, in their industry. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, it's very important. I hope they 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 take take heed and understand when you when you tell them that that ultimately um, you know your stakeholders out there are gonna gonna expect to uh, to see um, 
transparent and, and demonstrable progress here through the reporting and and that's some of the other things that, that some of our other contributors wrote about and we'll be talking to in, in the series here. Um, let's, and, and, you know, for the, for the listeners again, uh, you know, Margaret was one of my, one of the co-editors, but she also was a very active author of several of the chapters in the book, um, including a few where uh, she played a lot a behind-the-scenes role to to help the other contributors get to the finish line and everything. Um, so I wanted to to spend a few minutes giving Margaret a chance to to talk a little more about some of the topics that, that she covered with with her work in the book. So uh, and a, a few questions on that. You know, beginning with you know, Margaret, perhaps could you get, could you talk to us a little bit about how a CSR program is different? Than a company's ethics and compliance program, and again for the listeners, well, you know, Margaret wrote an excellent chapter on ethics and compliance programs in the book. So what we want to do is put that in in the lens of you know, along with of CSR. Thanks, Alan. So so that chapter um, that Alan's referring to did discuss um, ethics and compliance program and in somewhat its its integration with a social responsibility program. So if you look at ethics and compliance, it traces its its roots in a way back to the Enron era in corporate America and then ultimately Sarbanes-Oxley and then the requirements of such laws as the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, federal government regulations, and the sentencing guidelines that mandate a company to put in place internal controls that can give it some sort of assurance that it is going to comply with the laws. And ultimately that then assures that its financial statements and their financial position won't be tanked by some illegal act that the company doesn't have methods to detect through risk um, identification measures or otherwise. And and that is sort of the essence of legal compliance, a, a company putting into place controls so that if it um, knows that it's selling its services and goods to a foreign government, how does it know that it's not going to violate the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act? It should have policies around that. That's the compliance part of it. But most laws and regulations that mandate an ethics and compliance program also include in there that a business should make its decisions with integrity, should act with honesty and ethics, which is far more squishy than saying this is the law and you have to follow it. And businesses then are supposed to operationalize that notion as well of operating with integrity and ethics. That's your sort of the hallmark of your ethics and compliance program. CSR is different. I view it almost as an evolution of the notion of an ethics and compliance program because it, it talks about, it sort of grows out of being legally compliant because you certainly can't be a good socially responsible corporate citizen if you're not somehow or other committed to and have in place ways to follow the law, legal compliance. It also contemplates that you're not a good corporate citizen if you're not going to behave in a manner where you are operating with integrity and that's sort of a core of your values of your organization. And, and that, that's one way that I, that I disagree a little bit with Warren Buffett. I mean, he, he, he is from what I read of him and, and hear of him and what he says, um, does strive to be a very ethical corporation, legally compliant as well. And I think that that is um, the basement of building your social responsibility program. And I think the social responsibility program takes it just a little bit beyond that and says, in addition to those two requirements, you need to honor the fact that you're a citizen in the communities where you exist 
as a corporation, you benefit from your citizenship and the license that society, government has given you to run yourself as a business, and therefore you should give back to that community and contribute to that, to that community. And that's sort of how I view corporate social responsibility in its different difference from ethics and compliance. And one last aspect of that in the book that, that Alan's been referencing, we use Uber as an example. And one of the things that Uber did when their new CEO took over, they were facing regulatory violations around the globe, and Uber went on a concerted effort to try to work with the communities where they were committing those violations or alleged to have committed those violations, I guess, and to try to come to some sort of agreement. And I think that is sort of a demonstration beyond legal compliance and really getting into being a social, socially responsible organization in the communities where you work. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, imp- very important and, and- you know, we we also had had a chapter on on um, community uh, in in the book, uh, which which we're not going to talk more about today. Um, and and um, I I ended up writing that chapter. I didn't plan to do it, but but it came to me because uh, the original contributor uh, reported back after his research that he didn't feel feel that it was necessarily that important or that there was not that much written on it. And I, I think we collectively didn't, <laughs> uh, were a bit surprised by that because, you know, when we, we give talks and everything, I think one of the first things we say to, to lawyers and business people uh, who ask, well, how can I get started? Uh, I say, well, just walk out the door. And, and and look around and in the community where you're working each day and 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 that sort of thing. So I think that's always a good good starting point. But let's let's jump right, Margaret, to to getting you know some your your ideas about what what role should lawyers be playing in in implementing CSR programs. So I think I mean from my personal experience or my personal philo- philosophy, I think a lawyer um, is is the former. Uh, GE's general counsel, Ben Heinemann, explained in his book, which I highly recommend, The Inside Counsel Revolution, Resolving the Partner-Guardian Tension, explains that really the in-house lawyer, and I would submit the external lawyers who guide corporations, is a a statesman. They're responsible for not just defining the legal guardrails for the company, but they, they also are responsible really for providing the legal and ethical and moral responsibility that that corporation owes its community. And my my mentors, both business mentors as well as my legal mentors, sort of instilled this notion in me that as a lawyer, I just don't define the laws or the regulations with which a corporation must comply with. But given our legal education, and this is, is Heinemann's theory, given our legal education, which is sort of less practical and more philosophical, we do get exposure to the philosophical um, backbone of why we have certain laws or why we have certain um, requirements and why courts take certain directions. And Heinemann makes the argument that given that sort of very philosophical education we get as lawyers, we are well situated to move in and opine on things like social responsibility or like an ethical decision, which are certainly far different than this is the law and this is how you follow it. I combine that with with our rules of professional standard, rule 2.1, counselor, and our our DC rules are very explicit and, and they always ring true to me because of what they say. And, and I mean, they're almost an exact quote is, 
our legal advice couched in the narrowest of legal terms may be of little value to a client sometimes, especially when you need to consider practical considerations such as the costs or the effects of a decision of our what our clients may make on other people or on society. And the rules comment go on and say purely technical legal advice can sometimes just be inadequate. So therefore, it is proper for a lawyer to consider relevant moral ethical considerations as well as other things that may influence our clients' decisions. And I think that's where we as lawyers can come into play where maybe there's not a law that says you have to be a corporate corporate. Um, citizen who is responsible. I think as lawyers, we are not doing our corporate clients the best um, service if we don't step into that role as a true advisor and as true statesman and say to them from an ethical or moral or community-driven perspective, here's some things that you really need to think about. Mm-hmm. Uh, that That is well said. And I, I recently, uh, in, in doing some additional writing specifically on business and human rights and looking at what's been written about the, the, the professional responsibilities of lawyers and law firms and things like that. I was struck by the statement of someone who said that, you know, it's no, as you said here, it's no longer sufficient. Uh, clients are, are not, are no longer not only looking to their lawyers as to what is, what is legal, but oftentimes they're looking to lawyers to guide, to give guidance on what is right quote unquote. And uh, that's quite a challenging and uh, somewhat daunting <laughs> role for for lawyers as business counselors. But but nonetheless, that that that's the trend. That's where, you know, where, where things are going here. So uh, it, given that, Margaret, you know, what techniques have you found effective in, in getting the leadership teams of your clients and businesses and, and the board of directors to support a CSR program? Um, so for starters, as you just mentioned, Alan, it's it's not always easy. Um, it's typical to have a lot of conversations around um, putting costs towards a corporate social responsibility program. Sometimes businesses think, aren't our contributions to particular nonprofits enough? There's a lot of conversations around what value does a corporate social responsibility bring to my business um, if we go back to the traditional notion of a corporations, which its job is to bring value to its investors. Um, I'd even call them more than conversations. I'd say downright arguments around the cost of CSR, the benefits of CSR, and then even when a business buys into it, they're like, okay, well, fine. We want to be a socially responsibility, responsible organization. Here's the, here's the nonprofit or the missions that we support both with people power and with our dollar power. Um, but I think a lawyer needs to let them know that they need to go a little bit further than that, um, that they actually need to somehow operationalize it um, through filing reports, through looking at their business operations, like in your world, Ellen, of, of human rights, looking down their supply chain and saying, listen, we could say with confidence and we can give a report of how we know that we have an ethical supply chain. And, and you see um, governments moving in that direction. California requires something like that. Federal government um, requires that of its contractors. The Brits require that now. So I think that having those discussions, bringing those discussions to the table, and then hearkening back to what that um, older model from HB Harvard Business Review talked about, their obligation um, from an ethics perspective, their obligations to provide, you know, encourage the sustenance of our environment, 
their license to operate as a corporation, which what comes with that is their responsibility to their community and then the value of their reputation. And I think if you can bring it to your business clients' leadership and let them know that ultimately this is going to um, keep their reputation in place, which is oftentimes the biggest um, and most important aspect of being a, 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 a profitable business, but also a good business. I think then also I encourage my clients and let them know that it usually will bring you better, more reputable business partners. It'll bring you better and, and, and more capable employees because employees don't want to work for a company that is not purpose-driven. Um, and then I think that begins to start to ring true with, your, with, with our business colleagues as we advise them on this. Mm. Um, one of the things we did when, when we... Uh, uh, put together the the table of contents for the desk book is is uh, to try and and get a broad reach in terms of the subjects that we covered and uh, uh, part of CSR is, is is working beyond shareholders to a broad group of stakeholders and and governments are an important stakeholder although I I think sometimes. Um, Given, given less, uh, recognition and attention than, than a lot of the other stakeholders that, uh, like employees and consumers and, uh, uh, supply chain partners and that sort of thing. All of which obviously are very important. But, uh, Margaret also wrote about and, and, and contributed a chapter on governments, which is an area where, where she is particularly expert. I've, I've done programs with her before on this and, and, and her grasp of the issues and practical knowledge is is, is very impressive. Um, uh, you know, Margaret, you you work with businesses that interface with governments, and, and and one issue that always jumps to mind when it comes to business working with governments is corruption. Um, we could spend a whole program on this, but but could you take a few a few moments to to talk about and discuss how a CSR program for mitigating the risk of corruption is different from a compliance program dealing with corruption. Sure. So I think, again, referencing back to what we talked before on the differences between a compliance and ethics program and a CSR program is, in your classic anti-corruption compliance program, a business is ensuring that it has, has the rules and the controls in place to follow the law so that it does not engage in, cor- in corrupt behavior. So they have policies around gifts. They have expense policies that limit what their folks can um, spend, you know, particularly with government officials. Um, it limits them from hiring from the government or doing other favors from the government. And then not only the policies and the controls, but also some sort of aspect of monitoring and auditing their expense practices, their hiring practices, doing due diligence on their business partners to see if their business partners engage in some sort of corrupt activity, training their employees on it. So that's that's here's the law, don't engage in corrupt behavior and then what does the business do to make sure that it's that it's it's not going to do that. I think and so that's sort of if you think about a supply and demand which um, um, colleagues uh, Greg Hill, um, Lee Fisk and Adib Mahmood wrote about in their anti-corruption as strategic corporate social responsibility a call to action from corporations um, back in May of 2009, which we cite in our book, they they frame it in the notion of a business's compliance program is sort of stopping the supply of corrupt payments, if you will. CSR, on the other hand, flips that around and sort of calls upon a corporation to do something to stop the demand for corruption. It approaches the issue of corruption from 
the aspect of what Alan just mentioned, how, how do you work with the government and how do you work with them as a stakeholder in your CSR program? And that calls upon notions of, of fairness, notions that as a corporation accepting the, the idea that a corrupt government weakens the rule of law, stymies economic growth, impedes opportunities for the citizens of any any any, any country that is um, um, engaged in a lot of corrupt activity. If the corporation thinks about it like that, that it's going to try to stop the demand or do something to be a fair and honest and citizen in the com- countries where it's working, I think, th- and to stop that demand for corruption, I think that's the difference of a CSR program from an ethics and compliance program. Hmm. So, so what, are some, what are some concrete steps a business can take to develop a CSR program when, when they're working with government? So, so I think one thing is 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 community out- outreach and appreciating the fact, as you mentioned, Alan, that the government actually is a stakeholder. Oftentimes, they're they're they regulate almost all businesses everywhere around the globe, one way or another. They have criminal powers. They have civil authority to to take action against you. And then, oftentimes, they're some of the biggest buyers. And in some countries of the world, they're the only buyer of what a business is selling. So, I think engaging with the governments, particularly with your local government, to try to encourage transparency, try to encourage government objectivity, especially appreciating if you're a U.S. company with a lot of power and influence, or even if not, if you're a U.S. company working in an emerging market, understand that they may not have the rule of law that we have here in the U.S. or in other parts of the world, that they don't have the competition, that they may not have the economic opportunities that we do here. So as a, as a, as a business going into an emerging market or into a country where there's not a strong rule of law, when you start engaging with your your government, um, either regulators or your government um, clients, speaking with them about your concern over corruption, speaking with them about how it will lift, um, you know, certain challenges they face if they avoid corruption, and, and making it clear in a very concrete way through your communications and through facilitating discussions with the government, with other businesses in that community, uh, about the the, the downfalls of corruption and why it should be avoided. And I think a, a particular, you mentioned before, Alan, about the small and, and middle market communities or businesses, they are, they are particularly well-suited, actually, to um, be on the forefront of acting as a socially responsible organization when it comes to corruption because of the close ties that a small business often has with the community where they work. They often support the community where they work through who they hire. They're often very politically active in local political processes. And their desire to improve their local government, in particular their desire to um, enhance the community where, they're, where they work, is sort of a hallmark of small business owners. And and there was a really interesting article, and in, in, again, Harvard Business Review is a lawyer. I love that magazine. Um, by um, Robert Crisanti in October of 2019, talking about what small businesses already know about social responsibility. And I think they are great, the small business that is, is great at demonstrating um, how developing a relationship with your local government, with your local community in a positive way, supporting politicians who they know are going to be transparent, who they know are going to be objective, who are not going to create a corrupt government politic. Um, That type of relationship in the community, engaging with other businesses in the community, I think is 
one of the most concrete things that a business can do around corruption. And then joining those organizations like um, OECD and other organizations that really promote anti-corruption initiatives around the globe. I think that's something that all businesses can do, but small businesses are particularly situated to do. Start conversations with the governments in the places that they work. Communicate publicly through their employees, through their website, through all their communications about their commitment to avoiding corrupt behavior, and then living that as they interact with their government colleagues, I think is one of the best ways to start decreasing the demand for corrupt payments or corrupt activities when doing business. Mm-hmm. Very well said. Um, Margaret, we're near the end of our time for today, uh, but uh, before we go, uh, perhaps you can take our last moments together to remind us why all this matters to you and to us. Well, Alan, going back to you know your title here, um, that organizations really do have a purpose, and in many times it is a very positive and constructive purpose. I think, you know, given, um, y- you know, the fact that there are a lot of corporate bad actors that we see out there in the world, many think that our capitalist system is broken, but I think there's a flip side that we need to think about when we think of the purpose-driven organization or the organization that is socially responsible, and that is it's through our capitalist system, it's through our corporations that can take an innovation um, design it, develop it, and bring it to market. Um, and it's through that innovation that we have cars, that we have, that we have light bulbs, that we have iPhones. It's, it's through corporations, whether big or small, that we have jobs, and through those jobs, money to care for our families, money to invest that can provide us for a secure retirement. And, and, and I think that when you think about those good things that a corporation could bring to the world, um, you then should, as a particularly a corporate lawyer, think about what corporations then owe society beyond that, and that's not just a a commitment to making ethical decisions and complying with the laws, but to be a good steward of their communities and a good steward of the resources that they generate, but also a good steward of the resources that they use. And I think that creates a greater purpose for them, and I think that creates an organization that really is socially responsible and effectively bringing innovation and what we need to market. I, it, it, very well, well said, particularly on a day like today. Uh, you know, Margaret, Margaret and I are, are recording uh, this program uh, in, uh, in the middle of March, in the middle of a very challenging time for uh, all communities across the country, if not around the world. And, and it, it is a time when uh, we are watching uh, not only how how our government reacts to it, but also how uh, our business organizations react to it. And, and, and Margaret, your words about uh, a time for companies to be good stewards of their communities and the resources they use, including uh, their employees and their families and that sort of thing, is is, is completely on point. Uh, this is not a drill. This is a uh, uh, this is this is the real deal, and uh, this is where businesses and and their lawyers are being challenged to put all these 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 principles into practice. Um, Margaret, thank you again for participating in the recording today and in the project itself, and I look forward to working with you again as we move forward. I want to thank all of you who are listening um, for joining us today. 
I hope you'll join me for our other programs in the series, and you can find information about the series, all of my guests, and the desk book, as well as resources on series topics provided by contributors at my website, alangunderman.com. If you have any questions for me or any of our guests, including Margaret, send me an email at alangunderman at gmail.com. So long for now, and I hope to be talking to you again soon. Thank you, Alan. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Section's podcast series, To the Extent That. The section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic, or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org slash bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.